1: That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
2: There's something going on with religion in America.
3: We worship God, not government.
2: On the one hand, the religious right, with the help of the Republican Party, has become enormously influential
0: usher in a new era for the United States that protects life, that protects the unborn, that supports women.
2: On the other hand, the number of Americans that identify as religious is declining. A new survey shows a significant drop in the number of Americans who identify as Christian. In particular, membership to houses of worship has decreased dramatically since the 2000s. This might seem like a contradiction, but I'm not so sure it is. I think the question we should be asking is whether what it means to be religious in America is changing. I'm Sean Illing, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Reza Aslan. He's one of the most engaging people to talk to about religion today. He's a scholar and author of multiple bestsellers, and he's got a new book out called An American Martyr in Persia, The Epic Life and Tragic Death of Howard Baskerville. Reza also was a producer for a drama for ABC, a sitcom for CBS, and two seasons of the acclaimed HBO series, The Leftovers, which was a deeply moving show about grief and loss and meaning it's one of my favorite shows ever, and it lingers with me still. And so I really wanted to start there. How did Reza,
3: a scholar of religion, end up working on the leftovers? Well, in a very sort of concrete sense, it came about because the creator of the show, Damon Lindelof, was a fan. And he had finished that first season of The Leftovers, which even Damon will tell you wasn't the best of the three seasons. I agree. Yeah, it very much tracked the book that Tom Perrotta had written, The Leftovers. But then when that was over, kind of the sky was the limit. And he had some ideas about what he wanted to do, but he was sort of unsure where the story would go. And so just out of the blue, called me up and asked me to dinner. I had happened to have read the book and was a fan of the first season. And so I was able to sort of give a brand new interpretation for what he had already created. And so he had this kind of idea about this show, but he didn't, I think, himself really understand sort of the spiritual ramifications, the mythical ramifications of what he was saying. So I sat there during <laughs> dinner and in about an hour, a soliloquy basically interpreted for him what he had already done. And when it was over, he was like, yes, let's do this together. But, you know, the flip side of that, too, is that I had been working in TV for a long time. Right, This wasn't my first producing credit. I had done a very expensive drama for ABC called Of Kings and Prophets, which was kind of a dramatic retelling of the King David story. And just recently, I you know, I had a sitcom on CBS called United States of Al about an Afghan refugee. So this is the world that I'd already been in for a while. But it's primarily because, as you say— I have these interests. I'm interested in faith and identity. I'm interested in doubt and the way that we understand ourselves in this kind of crazy, unstable world. Yeah. And I just assume that other people would be interested in, in that kind of stuff too if I could figure out an appealing way to communicate and what's more appealing than television.
2: I'm certainly in the uh, target demo for a show like <laughs> that, but I've always been interested in nihilism mm-hmm. as a spiritual, and a political problem. And just for people who may have forgotten or didn't see it, and if you didn't, you should, the premise of The Leftovers is that 1% of the population just-
3: 2%. Oh, 2%, sorry.
2: Disappears just off the face of the earth, and no one knows why. And then there's this kind of quasi-nihilistic cult that emerges, and the members take a vow of silence, and they're chain-smoking cigarettes, and they're kind of like, leaning into the screw it, nothing matters if this can happen, energy. Yeah. And they're like super aggressively tossing all the despair into everyone's faces and making them eat it. That's right. What I wonder is when you were working on that, did you see any analogs to that today? Did you feel like you were dramatizing a feeling, a mood that was already afoot in the world now?
3: You know, it's it's so fascinating that you say that because I think that the situation that you're describing is far more prevalent today yeah. than it was when we were making the show. 100%. But what you're saying is, look, this incredible, miraculous, inexplicable thing happens. 2% of the world's population simply disappears. Good, bad, young, old, Christian, atheist. There's no rhyme or reason to it. And then the show starts three years later. And I think... What we were trying to say was, it doesn't matter what the crisis is. Human beings will just go back to normal. We'll, We'll go back to fighting over just useless bullshit. We'll pretend that everything is okay. The show goes on. Yeah, we'll come up with different answers and different religions, certainly different ways of making sense of something that has no sense whatsoever, but we'll just go on. And the guilty remnant, what was sort of incredible about them, I mean, in many ways, they're sort of like the villains of the story, if you will. I think a lot of people thought of them in that way, is that their whole point was we refuse to move on. We will not move on. We will remind you every day, every minute, every second of this thing that happened so you cannot forget it.
2: They have a story, right? I don't understand. A story, a a myth. A rule book that says, do this, this way, or else. Uh. Like the smoking. Uh, You never really explain why they make you smoke all the time. Like, for instance, the Catholics believe that uh, Christ died on the cross for our sins. We know what the guilty remnant does, but
3: what do they believe?
2: They believe the world ended.
3: And now, here we are. (laughs) Fascism is on the rise around the world, two-thirds of Americans, agreed that democracy is under threat in the United States. The planet is on fire. I mean, we look at the world around us and rather than take the lesson from the guilty remnant and say, I'm not going to look away, I'm not going to ignore this, I'm going to actually be in this present moment and deal with it, instead, what are we doing? We're having fights about, I don't know, something Ben Affleck did, I guess, maybe. Hey,
2: there's a new season of Stranger Things. Reza, what are you talking about? Come on.
3: <laughs> yeah. Oh, did somebody spit on Chris Pine? Is that? what? Like, what the fuck, people? And so I think, in a way, it was a- ahead of its time, honestly, that show in so many facets.
2: Yeah, I think so. But you yourself have a very interesting religious Background, And I just want to give people a sense of not just your religious background, but sort of how you think of religion and what it mm. means for people in everyday life. Because it's important context to have, because a lot of what you think about the world as it is today kind of stems from that. And you're someone who was raised by a secular family in Iran, you became an atheist, then you... <laughs> Briefly converted to Christianity, and then you return to Islam as an adult. I mean, yeah. what's going on, man? Like, pick a team already. What are you?
3: I know, right? <laughs> Look, I mean, I've always been fascinated by the power that religion has to transform a society for good and bad. I mean, I lived through the 1979 Iranian Revolution. I was able to watch what happened. And when we fled and came to the United States, my father, who was a communist and an atheist, basically said, well, now that we're not in Iran, we don't have to pay lip service to religion anymore. We can just kind of scrub it from our lives. But maybe it's because of that, that it just only made me more interested in religion. When I was in high school, I first heard the gospel story. I went to an evangelical youth camp and heard this incredible story, the greatest story ever told about the God of heaven and earth coming down in the form of a baby, dying for our sins, this promise that anyone who believes in him, just believe in him. That's that's it. That's all you got to do. And you'll have eternal life. You'll never die. I'd never heard anything like that before in my entire life. It was the greatest thing I'd ever heard. So I immediately converted to evangelical Christianity. As you might guess, I don't do anything half acidly And so I poured all of my heart and soul into this and you know just began preaching this gospel to anyone whether they wanted to hear it or not when i went to college i mean i always knew that i wanted to be a writer i mean that's all i've ever wanted to be is a writer i am also an immigrant and it's very difficult to tell your immigrant parents who literally left everything behind in order to give you a better life that i, I think i'm going to be a writer i actually told my mother i was like mom i want to be a writer and she said, who's stopping you from writing? <laughs> like, You know, you'd be a doctor and go write. Like, what's I said, No, I, I want that to be my job. And she was like, that's not a job. That's not an actual job. That's a hobby. So when I went to college, I decided I'm going to study religion because I'm fascinated by it and come from this place of devout Christian to it. And it didn't take long for me to realize that everything that I knew, everything I thought I knew was wrong. Certainly everything I thought I knew about Jesus was wrong. But more importantly, as you sort of say in your question, that religion wasn't even what I thought it was, that religion essentially is a language. It's a language made up of symbols and metaphors, the purpose of which is to help you Communicate what is fundamentally inexpressible, right? That sense of being, of transcendence, faith, if you want to call it, whatever. Faith is a loaded word, obviously. But it's an emotion, right? Yeah, It's an emotion that requires a language so that you can speak about it. And religion is just kind of ready-made languages. That's all it is. And so in a sense, you know, what's the difference between French and German or German and Russian? They're just different languages, but you're expressing the same emotion. And when I learned that, like my head just exploded and it just changed everything for me. I think you first
2: came to my attention, was it maybe a decade ago when the whole new
3: atheist thing was... A thing. Oh yes, my good friends in the new atheist community. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta tell you. Back then, the
2: phrase militant atheist may be a little much, but you know, I was in college and I was definitely an atheist who was really eager to let people know.
3: Oh yeah. Yeah.
2: I was an atheist, you know, an atheist bro, as it were.
3: <laughs> I know those guys, yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I remember watching you and Sam Harris debate mm. and I was very much on Harris's side at the time.
3: So to simply create these false dichotomies, that you either believe that the Bible is the word of God, or it's not, and therefore the entire history upon which the Bible rests is illegitimate, I don't think that that's necessarily the best way to think about the role and function of religion. Sam. I mean, we are living in a country where 53% of the the population claims to believe that the the universe is 6,000 years old. This is a majority of the American population you can call this extremism i mean this is these views are extreme in almost every respect they are extremely silly
2: but the way i have come to think about religion and god has evolved a lot in the last decade but what was interesting to me about you is that you didn't strike me as a religious apologist you didn't even strike me as someone who was defending religion as a believer, you you struck me as someone who was trying to think very seriously about why it persists and the role it actually plays in our lives. Yeah. I mean, is that a fair description of what you were doing, of what you're still doing now? Because all of your work is kind of geared in
3: this direction. Absolutely. In fact, the one thing that I try to say as often as possible is that there isn't, despite what you think, there's nothing all that unique about religion as an ideology. I mean, it functions pretty much like any other ideology. People always say, oh, but religion deals in absolutes and nationalism doesn't. Religion is all about in-groups and out-groups. Are you kidding me? Like, I can name half a dozen other ideologies. Religion is responsible for the world's greatest violence. Have you been paying attention to the last century? I mean, unquestionably, the most bestial acts in human history have occurred, not just in the last hundred years, but in the name of explicitly non-religious ideologies like Nazism and socialism and Marxism and Stalinism and Maoism. That is not to say that religion doesn't bear responsibility for the awful things that have happened in religion's name. It's just to say that stop elevating religion to some rarefied place and think of it as utterly unique. That requires a whole new set of ways of thinking about it and treating it. I think that's the biggest mistake, I would say, of some of these new atheist preachers is that they don't really understand what religion is. And then also, they have this really unsophisticated view of religious people. You know, Sam Harris thinks that religious people are basically like robots and that scripture is kind of coding and that... The scripture, you know, beep-boop-beep-boop tells them what to do and they go out there and do it. And what he fails to understand, and I get it because it is kind of antithetical to what I think most people assume about religion, is that religious people do not derive their values from their scriptures. Religious people insert their values into their scriptures.
2: Yeah. I think that's kind of what I came to dislike about The New Atheist. It's this obsession with empirical truth as though religion or God is a straight up epistemological question. Like I remember one time (laughs) Harris going on a rant about the arithmetic of souls and like what happens when an embryo <laughs> splits and, you know, what happens to the soul then? And I remember hearing it and thinking, oh, that's so clever.
3: But it's not.
2: <laughs> it seems so silly in retrospect. It's like watching a football game and hearing a commentator say that, you know, the quarterback fights like hell. He's got a huge heart. And like, we all know what that means, right? We know the language game we're playing here, right? Right. And then someone says, well, what do you mean? The heart is an organ. Everyone's heart is basically the same size. What are you? Blah, blah, <laughs> beep, bloop, bleep. You know, it's
3: like, what are you doing? <laughs> Or Bill Maher has this thing that he said once to me, actually, on stage, where he was like, the problem is, is that like, if there's a turd in a pool, you throw away all of the pool water. You don't just like remove the turd and say, it's fine now. And that's the problem with religion. So sure, there's a lot of wonderful things in it, but there's some bad things and therefore all of it should go away. Okay,
2: that's fine. And I guess the last thing I'd just say, like, I'm not anti-God, but I'm. I think what I am, and maybe you are too, is anti-dogma. Because wherever there's dogma, there's authority. And wherever there is authority, there is a lot of people around looking to preserve power. Yeah, <laughs> And I think that's when things go
3: sideways. You know, I study the world religions the way that somebody else would study art history. I mean, this is a human construction. It's a human phenomenon. It has a history and an evolution and you can study the branches and you can make some very interesting observations about human behavior and societal functioning and all of that stuff. But I also recognize that religion and faith are two completely different things. Whatever faith is, whatever this mysterious force that we have, this emotion that we feel, this sense of otherness and transcendence, whatever that is, that's part of the human condition. It's like who we are as human beings. And it's just so important to keep those things separate, right? Faith is ineffable. It's mysterious. It's, as I've said, fundamentally an emotion. Religion is how we talk about it. That's it.
2: Yeah, my quibble, I think, isn't with God or faith. I think I'm very open. Now <laughs> to the experience of the divine, I think my beef is with people who claim to know God's mind
3: Oof, yeah
2: and want to see to it that the rest of us surrender to that vision, yeah with so many of these like moralizing creature types mm-hmm. they claim to be so concerned with our fate in the next world. but boy, they sure seem to want a lot of
3: power in this one, don't they? <laughs> yeah and if there's one benefit of the last six years of living hell that we've all been experiencing here, is that it's kind of pulled the curtain away from precisely the people that you're talking about. The people who would stand on their pedestals and talk about how they're value voters, that what they want is people to live according to Christian morals and that what they are looking for in their leaders is uh, Christ-like behavior. And then... Almost all of them, 81% of white evangelicals decide to support this orange Jesus who is like the incarnation of all the seven deadly sins. And yet, the blatant hypocrisy of this worship of this man, again, I think has done a lot to disabuse most Americans of this self-ascribed position that these white evangelicals have held for decades in this country is sort of like the moral majority.
2: If you look at recent polls, it seems like Americans' enthusiasm for religion is dropping. But is that really what's going on? I'll ask Reza Aslan after a quick break.
0: Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO, Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor. What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.
2: Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed, and it ships straight to your door for free. Great area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com/box. That's burrow, burro slash box for 15% off. .com/box We've been moving towards Trump and Trumpism here <laughs> <laughs> throughout this conversation, and I see a lot of the same polls you see, I imagine as someone who studies this much more intently than I do. Mm-hmm. And all the polling that we have says that there's a pretty steady, sharp, maybe too strong, but pretty steady decline in religiosity, not just globally but especially in the u s. Do you think our society is actually becoming less religious, or do you think the expressions of religion are changing, and we just don't recognize it as religion, but it is
3: yeah, there has been a rapid decline, as you say, but It's not of religiosity. It's of religious identity. Mm. So in other words, what we are noticing and especially over the last two decades is a precipitous drop in the percentage of Americans who are willing to identify themselves with a particular religion. The United States has for a very, very long time obviously been majority Christian in a number of previous polls. It has more or less been stable at around 70 percent or so, you know, like 7 out of 10 Americans call themselves Christian. But what we've been seeing in a number of these polls, the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life, the PPRI polls, is that that number is dropping and it's dropping quickly. I saw a recent report, I believe it was Pew, that said that that number the number of Americans who are willing to identify as Christian is now at 64%. That's the lowest it has ever been. That's kind of startling. And the prediction is that if that trend continues, maybe by 2050 or so, Christians will no longer be They'll drop under 50 percent. They'll still be the largest religious group in America, but they will drop to below 50 percent. So you look at that and you say, oh, well, that means religion is on the decline, that people are becoming less religious, that maybe atheism is on the rise or this is just the result of sort of – the natural progression of society that, of course, as we get richer and smarter and more technologically advanced, of course, we become more secular. But that's a real misunderstanding, as you rightly note, of what these numbers actually say. Because at the same time that we have seen this precipitous drop In people who are identifying themselves with a particular religion, what we are seeing is this rapid rise in the so-called non-affiliated or the nons. These are people who don't refer to themselves as atheists. I mean, atheists have more or less... They've kind of stabilized at about 2.5% of the American population, though atheists will tell you. It's a lot more. There's just people don't won't say it. Yeah, that seems really low. Yeah, I mean, it probably is. And again, atheist means materialist. It means I believe that there is nothing, nothing beyond the material world, that the only thing that exists is what I can empirically experience with my senses, right? Yeah. So, In a place like America, that's not a large group of people who would say that with confidence. And for those who do say it, good for you. Great job. What we're talking about is people who, to put it in its sort of the easiest parlance, call themselves spiritual but not religious. In other words, they believe maybe even in God or a higher power or in a spiritual realm or in a transcendent reality, but they refuse to call themselves Christian or Muslim or Jewish or Buddhist or what have you. That number currently represents one quarter of all Americans. 24% of all Americans now fall under the category of non-affiliated. For millennials, the number is 66%. Two-thirds of Americans under the age of 40 refuse to identify themselves with any religion, but also maintain this kind of desire and openness for spiritual edification, you know, however that's understood. That's the story.
2: It's kind of encouraging because I think a lot of people in that group probably look at their religious institutions and feel a little bit betrayed and turned off by the corruption and don't want anything to do with that. That's exactly right. That doesn't mean that they've lost their faith, but they've lost their trust in the institutions that were supposed to be vessels for their faith. And they were right to do it in many cases.
3: A hundred percent. You're absolutely right. I mean, how could you not, right? I mean, you just look at just the last few years and the way that religion has been adulterated and bastardized in this country in exchange for just rank political power we're talking a few days after you know news came out that surprise surprise herschel walker <laughs> a man who says that abortion should be outlawed under any circumstances has at least paid for one abortion i mean at least and as unsurprising as that is what i think is even perhaps more unsurprising is that the religious right doesn't give a shit. No. They're like, no, we don't care. It's fine. It's fine. I mean, uh, no more abortions for anybody else. That's what we mean. And if you're, you know, a Christian kid, you grew up in the church, you know, you love Jesus, you have a deep spiritual longing, and you look at this, how can you be associated with it? You just can't be associated with it any longer. Here's something really fascinating. When you start to bear down on those numbers that I gave, 24% of all Americans, 66% of everyone under 40, when you start to really bear down and you ask those people who are non-affiliated certain questions, you know, explain to me your spirituality. Like, how would you put it into words? Like, you don't call yourself a Christian. I get that. Tell me what you believe. And what they start talking about is Christianity. I mean, you know, when they start expressing their beliefs, like it's pretty much identical to what your basic mainstream Christian believes. But they just refuse to call it Christianity anymore. And that's why the way you asked your question was so astute because it acknowledges that whatever religion is, however you think about it, it is a constantly changing, constantly evolving phenomenon. Religion is in a constant state of adapting to whatever needs people have. What we call Protestant Christianity today bears almost no resemblance to what they called Protestant Christianity 200 years ago. <laughs> you know, yeah. That's the thing that you have to understand about religion is that it, it's constantly changing.
2: You would know this better than I would, but religion has always been used to buttress political movements. There's nothing new about that. I guess the question that I have for someone like you is why is something like Trumpism, which you've called a cult or religious cult.
3: Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
2: Why is it a cult and not just another example of religious believers playing the secular power game?
3: Well, first of all, I I often joke that the difference between a cult and a religion is time. (laughs) (laughs) right? That cult plus time equals religion. Like that's basically (laughs) most of our great world religions have begun in that way. It's just a matter of like, can you make it for a couple of decades? You can? All right, great. You're a religion. But I think that religion, and this has always been the case, has always held the most currency for the masses. Religion has this way of taking very complex issues and reducing them to their most elemental aspects, right? And this has always been the case. I mean, I, I bring this up all the time, even though it's been so long now. But I mean, I remember when George Bush stood up after the attacks of 9-11 and he announced the war on terror. He said, the war on terror is a battle between good and evil. Yeah. That's what he said. That's what I mean when I say religion has this power, right? Because everyone, every child can understand that choice you know, good and evil. I mean, like whose side are you on? It's very, very simple to choose those things. That's always been the case. You always have a way of using religion as shorthand. And by the way, this is why it's become so powerful for politicians, even people like Donald Trump, who is unquestionably the most irreligious man who has ever held that office. He knows that he can say certain things Certain religious words, and those things become shorthand, not for any policy that he has or doesn't have, or frankly, any values that he may share. It's shorthand for, I am like you.
2: And to be fair, not all Christians bent the knee to Trump. No. We're really mostly talking about white evangelicals going all in on Trump. Yes. What do you think it was about this religious demographic or group or whatever? Mm-hmm. That made it ripe for this kind of profanity. And I use that word very intentionally.
3: 81% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. 67% of evangelicals of color voted for Hillary Clinton. These are people who ostensibly share the same beliefs. But let's see, what is the defining difference between those two groups? What is it? What is it? <laughs> oh, right, skin color. I mean, look, again, at least we've stopped pretending that this is not about race. I mean, that's one thing that's been very refreshing about our political discourse right now since the Trump years is that we don't have to keep pretending that this isn't almost wholly about racism, because it is almost wholly. About racism. White evangelicalism in this country, by the way, has always been steeped in Christian nationalism and fascist ideologies and in racism. I'm not saying all white evangelicals are those things, but I'm saying white evangelicalism as a movement has had its roots in these phenomena long before Trump. The difference is that Trump recognized it and in a very transactional way, made a promise. You give me your support and I will give you power. Pretty simple. And that's precisely what's happened. And now, you know, post-Trump, we have the children of that marriage. People like Lauren Boebert or like Marjorie Taylor Green. you know, these people who are no longer speaking in code, <laughs> you know. Nope. They're like, no, no, Christian nationalism. That's what we want. A nation founded on Christian principles in which non-Christians are not welcome. I know that in the past, people like Newt Gingrich, even George W. Bush would talk about those kinds of things using codified language. But that's all been stripped away. And it's not going to survive if this is the path that they are taking. But To our earlier point, it may not survive, but something else will take its place because religion is constantly changing, constantly adapting, constantly splitting and recreating itself, being called by different names. As long as it has a way of adapting to the needs of the people, it will always exist.
2: What even is the end goal of Christian nationalism? I mean, to my mind, fascism is not a state. It's not a regime type it's a means of acquiring power. And the question then is, well, what do you do once you have it? Yeah. What the
3: hell do they really want to do? Well, we don't have to actually look that far to find out what the end goal is, because religious nationalism isn't just an American phenomenon. Right. In fact, it has been on the rise for a, a great deal of the last half century or so. And partly this has to do with the fact that other forms of nationalism, secular nationalism, which was, after all, the prevailing theory of the 20th century, that if we just rid ourselves of our ethnic and racial and religious differences and come together as free and equal citizens of nation-states, then all the wars and the violence will go away and we will have peace and prosperity. how that work? That work out okay for everybody? <laughs> Instead, secular nationalism led to two... Gigantically destructive world wars. And then, you know, with the rise of globalization and sort of the assault on national borders and boundaries and sort of the slow diminishing of nationalism as a kind of collective identity, it's only natural that other forms of identity have started to rise up in order to replace secular nationalism. And religion has always been one of the most primal, most powerful forms of identity. So, Whether we're talking about the rise of Jewish nationalism in Israel or Hindu nationalism in India or Islamic nationalism in large parts of the Middle East, including in Iran or Christian nationalism here in the United States. This is a global phenomenon. And if you want to know what the outcome is, let's look at the people who are a couple of decades ahead of us. Let's look at the Islamic Republic of Iran. That's the outcome. Let's look at Israel which a lot of people would disagree with me, but which is unquestionably by every definition of the word an apartheid state. That's what we're moving towards. Let's look at India, where Hindutva, this notion of Hindu nationalism, is explicitly now not just oppressing, but outright murdering non-Hindus as an act of patriotism. That's the outcome that we are moving towards. That's where Christian nationalism leads. It's where all religious nationalism leads.
2: Yeah, and I I have believed and said for a long time that I think often people think of politics as a prop for religion, but I think it's the other way around very often. You know, you can look at, say, Herschel Walker, right? The party won't care and the voters won't care. They want power. And it's not an accident that, abortion and defensive marriage are the top priorities overwhelmingly for evangelicals and not something that i don't know christ worried about like poverty and poor people <laughs> you know i mean it it's so clearly floats with the political winds and what the religion looks like at any moment depends upon the political situation and what it takes to win and achieve power and it's amazing how easily a religious movement can shape shift when it needs to In order to win.
3: Mm -hmm. I've been talking a lot about the difference between religion and faith. And what we call faith, that is this sort of impulse towards spiritual thinking, is older than our species. We have material evidence of that kind of behavior and belief going all the way back to Neanderthals. What we call religion is barely 12,000 years old. We have material evidence that can trace it to I don't know, maybe twelve to 14,000 years ago. And what happened? Well, what happened is that people realized that you could actually use faith to control large populations. So, they built temples where you have to go in order to make offerings. They created priesthoods who can define not just what faith is and how to express it, but who's right and who's wrong. They wrote scriptures in order to codify the rules and regulations so that the people who controlled this whole thing have the ability to do so from generation to generation to generation. So yeah, religion was created with the purpose of controlling populations. And so, of course, it's always had that role in society and in politics. That doesn't mean it's illegitimate or it's not a real way of expressing this fundamental human emotion that we call faith. It's just the idea that it could be divorced somehow from politics or from just rank power and control is absurd. It's never been divorced from that and it never will be.
2: Coming up after one last quick break. If, as Reza said earlier, a religion is just a cult plus time, what does that say about QAnon? Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try GreenLight for free. GreenLight.com slash gray area.
1: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance... Who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
2: What do you make of something like QAnon? <laughs> you know, like, it's such a bizarre thing. It's weirdly religious and culty in all kinds of ways, but it's so incredibly stupid that calling it a religion feels too charitable. <laughs> right. But I don't know, you were just saying that like every religion begins as a ridiculous cult. So is this the start of like the
3: next big thing? It very well could be. I mean, look, <laughs> it is secret messages in code intended for those with the wisdom to understand them sent by an invisible hand that nobody knows. I mean, that doesn't sound like a religion to you. It's
2: pretty damn religious.
3: Yeah, exactly. It's very cultish behavior, obviously, and we've talked about the difference between the two. But the reason that it's so powerful within the sort of white evangelical Christianity is because it it feeds that – outlook that they already have, the perspective of the world that they already have, right? The notion that they are privy to a secret knowledge that no one else can understand, the acceptance and the correct interpretation of leads to salvation and eternal life. Well, that's just Christianity. So it's very easy to just superimpose that upon this insane conspiracy. And by the way, it comes wrapped in with good and evil, us and them, in and out, right? You're a righteous person and the people who disagree with you eat babies. (laughs) I mean, like, what do you say to that? You know what I mean? Like, okay. All right, then.
2: I don't know, man. This is such a weird, (laughs) ridiculous, amazing country. Yeah. (laughs) You know, we're like, we're not just extremely religious in a conventional sense, certainly like compared to the rest of the, the world or much of the world. The Western world, certainly. We're also religious in a million other ways. Bullshit is a kind of religion here. Shopping is a religion. (laughs) Libertarianism is definitely Uh an American religion. We're just a religious people, man. Yeah. (laughs) like One way or the other, that impulse is going to find an expression. And usually it's ridiculous and sometimes dangerous and sometimes
3: funny. There is actually an an academic term for this and I try my hardest to like excise all academic terms from my vocabulary (laughs) as much as possible. But the term we use to talk about this unique situation in the United States that you referred to is the religious marketplace. We call religion in America a religious marketplace unlike anywhere else in the world and I mean this anywhere else in the world religion is a kind of pick and choose this and that. I used to be this. Now I'm that. A la carte, baby. Yeah. Nowhere else in the world does that happen. And so it has created the most religiously diverse nation in the world. That's, I think, true. But, and certainly the most religious country in the developed world. That's certainly true. And it's this kind of unique amalgam that's made, you know, a lot of things great and a lot of things pretty shitty. But – Here's one thing that I would say is that I'm sure like a lot of your audience, they're listening to this and they're saying, well, then Jesus, let's just get rid of religion. Like that would take care of a lot of problems. We've already talked about how that's a sort of misguided way of thinking about even what religion is. But at the very least, an argument could be made, well, then let's just remove religion from politics. Let's just remove religion from society. Okay, great. You want religion? You have your religion. Mind your own business. And, you know, let's just kind of divorce it from the political realm. And I get that. As a human being, as an American, I understand that impulse. But it also fails to understand what we've been talking about this whole time. Because fundamentally, when someone says, I am Christian, I am Jewish, I am Muslim, I am Buddhist, they're not necessarily making a faith statement. They're making an identity statement. Yeah. They're talking about who they are, not necessarily what they believe. And as an identity statement, that notion is wrapped up around all your other markers of identity, your social status, your economic position, your race, your gender, your sexual orientation. All of that gets wrapped up in the words, I am Christian. So the idea that in a democracy, individuals should have to put aside one aspect of their identity, their religion, in order to choose who amongst a series of candidates is most like them, maybe theoretically sounds nice, but it's just in practice not just impractical, but anti-democratic, frankly.
2: Yeah, I'm, I know we're getting close to the end here, but I am glad you went there in terms of identity and purpose and community, I, because I do think there's something really important to wrestle with, and I think now it's is a place where some people on the right and left kind of converge in their critiques of liberalism. Mm. That we live in this very liberal capitalist society that is defined by individualism and consumerism. And there's a metaphysical hole at the center of all that. Modern life has become very virtual and isolating and bereft of meaning and community. And these are deep, deep human needs. And if they are not met... They're going to manifest in probably destructive ways. And yeah. I wonder if you imagine some kind of spiritual renaissance in this country. Or again, maybe we're already seeing it and we just don't like it. It's not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. It's QAnon <laughs> and the Viking shaman. You know, is that,
3: is that what we got? I used to make this argument all the time because people would always talk about, oh, when were we going to see an Islamic reformation like we saw a Christian reformation? I'm like, you mean the Christian reformation that led to half the population of Germany dying? That one? That Christian Reformation? The Christian Reformation that led to the Thirty Years' War? That one? You're watching it, right? This violence that you are seeing in the world is the Reformation. Like, that's what reformations are. I will say one thing that I think is really interesting, though, and it doesn't get talked about enough, which is that it goes back to the principle of all of this. Religion is constantly changing, it is constantly adapting. And we are in this place now where The very definition of community is fundamentally changing for really the first time, I think, in human history. I mean, really, from the moment that we were, you know, barely upright to about, I don't know, two decades ago, the definition of community meant the people around you, right? The people in your cave, the people in your village, the people in your city, the people in your state, the people in your country. That's what community means. It's a geographically bound idea. And for the first time in human history, geography doesn't matter anymore. A kid in Los Angeles probably has more in common with a kid in Jakarta than either of those two have in common with anyone in their actual physical community. And because they have now access to these new technological communication abilities, they can create the same kind of bond, a meaningful, deep bond thousands of miles away from each other. That is stronger than any bond that they could ever have with their own sort of physical community. And I think that's what's going to really change religion is that in a way, it's going to sort of recreate how we understand what our community, what our collective actually is. For good and for bad, who knows? I mean, I honestly don't know what the outcome of that is going to be, but I do think that it is an interesting phenomenon to trace. Yeah. And if we
2: disagree about anything, it it may be, I'm not so sure. I believe that all religions are expressions of the same faith, Mm. though they may be very different responses to the same existential needs or impulses or questions. But one point you've always made that I think cannot be made enough is that context matters, Mm. social and political context matters. And to not care about that, Or attempt to understand why certain strains of certain religions get activated or suppressed at certain moments. Or why populations become very religious or pathological or extremist in certain moments is intellectually lazy and misses the root causes of a lot of our disorder and a lot of our problems. And it's something that I think not enough people do often enough or loudly enough. To your credit, that is something that you were always trying to do. Certainly in those New Atheist debates, mm-hmm. and shit. People may forget during then this is when like Islamo fascism was like banging down our door, and the yeah. world was on the precipice of annihilation. And uh-huh. you were one of the people that was sort of in the fire in the discourse,
3: mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> as it was back then.
3: Ah, oh, simpler times. Simpler times when we were. <laughs> you know, under existential threat from outside forces, when the enemy wasn't within. I remember those days. <laughs>
2: but isn't it amazing how that was? I mean, the looming boogeyman that was going to bring all of civilization to ruins imminently, and now it's like
3: it's an afterthought, man. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, yeah, it's like it never happened. It's crazy. The call is coming from inside the house, Sean. <laughs>
2: This has been a ton of fun, Reza. I've wanted to chat for a very long time, which is probably why we have been all over the place. There's (laughs) just so many things I wanted to talk to you about and hear from you about. Your new book is called An American Martyr in Persia, The Epic Life and Tragic Death of Howard Baskerville. You are a tremendous writer. People should go and check it out and read anything you have written or will write. Reza Aslan, thank you for being here.
3: This was a lot of fun. Thank you, Sean.
2: Eric Janikas is our producer, Amy Drozdowska is our editor, Patrick Boyd is our engineer, Alex Overington wrote our theme music, and A.M. Hall is the boss. So what'd you think of that episode? Does Reza's distinction between faith and religion mean anything to you? Do you think religion is actually declining in this country? Are you re-watching The Leftovers? you want to share a cry? Drop us a line at, the gray area at vox.com. And if you like this app, please share it with all your friends and leave a review. That stuff really, really helps. Episodes drop Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe.